The Talking Points podcast is produced in partnership with C. Michael Gibson and clinicaltrialresults.org. Gibson and Dean Kiriakis coming to you virtually from TCT 2020. Dean, uh, I'm really excited to hear what you have to say about this new technology, Disrupt CAD. Some of us, like myself, are not big fans of atherectomy due to distal embolization. So I'm very excited to see this kind of new type of technology. Talk to us a little bit about what you found. Well, thanks. Thanks a lot for the opportunity, Mike. Intravascular lithotripsy really applies a technology that's been used for over 30 years to treat kidney stones, and it packages it in a balloon. One of the novel things here, and I'll mention one of the endpoints that I, or observations that I thought was so fascinating in the trial, is that they take a novel technology, leading edge technology, and they package it in the most primitive device that you and I use, dating to the days of Andreas Grunzing. It's a balloon. Mm-hmm. So the learning curve, uh, uh, distinctly different from the atheroblative technologies, is is virtually non-existent. Right. Yeah, it, I've used it a couple of times, and it was very uh, easy to use. I agree. It's simple. And yeah. so with, uh, without uh, telling you, I'll, I'll sneak that in right now. We had one roll-in per site, 47 international sites. And then we had 384 patients in an ITT population, which a primary endpoint for 30 days was derived. And the populations, 47 and 384, were um, clinically and angiographically similar. Mm-hmm. The outcomes in the first 47 patients were not different from the outcomes in 384. So device crossing success, freedom from MACE at 30 days, procedure success. I mean, it really is pretty remarkable uh, when you think about that, that uh, that's the learning curve, one case or less. So um, we uh, did a single arm, non-randomized trial of this technology, which is a lithotripsy in a balloon catheter, so to speak, the intent of which is to um, modify calcium because this trial also, I think, definitively tells you what the mechanism is for the technology, because we had a 100-patient OCT subset very carefully studied. So it's a calcium-modifying technique, single, non-randomized, and it was based on performance goals that we established from the predicate Orbit 2 trial, which was single-arm, non-randomized, IDE trial for orbital atherectomy. We use the same endpoints. We use the same definitions. Uh, CKMB greater than 3X, for example, we core labbed out because many hospitals don't even do CKMB anymore. Yeah. But that was the definition, mm-hmm. but two, so at that time, so that's what we did. Um, and we tried to enroll the same patient population. So the entrance criteria were a rate of passing on both sides of the artery without contrast, at least 15 millimeters. Think about that, angiographically. Mm-hmm. Imaging, you had to have a calcium mark at least 270 degrees, at least. 
So you could get in either with, you weren't obligated to do imaging, but either way. So we enrolled those patients. Uh, it was powered based on the performance goals established for primary safety performance goal was freedom from MACE, the 30 days. Primary uh, effectiveness performance goal for success. And that was defined as successful stent delivery um, with a less than 50% residual stenosis and no in-hospital mace. Mm -hmm. Obviously, one criticism would be, that's pretty archaic, it's antiquated, nobody used less than 50 anymore for stent. So, but that's the primary endpoint that was used in Orbit 2. So we did sensitivity analysis using less than equal to 30%. Sure. Which is, and frankly, all the stent trials that we do now all have that. The FDA's embraced that. That's less than third, less than equal to thirty percent residual. So in that, uh, we, I mean, the device hit a home run. We far exceeded the safety performance goal. The lower bound far exceeded the performance goal. Uh, the lower bound in the effectiveness far exceeded the performance goal. The total MACE uh, to in-hospital was 7% and to 30 days, 7.8, uh, which is less than the 10.4 that was noted in Orbit 2. Um, and our population, when I tell you, the Orbit 2 had a lesion length of 18.9. Ours is 26. Orbit had a calcified segment length of 28 millimeters. Ours is 48 millimeters calcified segment length. So when you look at that, uh, really a rougher group of patients uh, documented. Uh, the ARC of calcium average in the OCT was 293. Wow. And the average thickness, 0 0.96 millimeters, almost a millimeter. You wow. CBI index score, you know, has got less than 0.5 uh, thickness, you know, I mean, greater than 0.5 thickness to get a point, you get greater than five millimeters length to get a point, and an arc greater than 180 to get two points, this is off the chart. Mm -hmm. And despite that, the procedure success uh, was uh, 92, width, that means no mace, uh, 92 point, uh, uh, 92.2, I'm sorry, and we use the less than 30% for procedure success, it's 92.4. Yeah. There's it's no difference. Uh, and that was very important observation. And that was, uh, Dean, 30% uh, by QCA or by operator assessment? Yeah, QCA. Because, you know, any little bump on QCA ends up being 20 yeah. Right. Yeah. And that was interesting because Orbit 2 did not have QCA, you know, on initial. It was site determined. Oh. Our initial evaluation, the primary procedure, and we had QCA on everything. Well, that's a more that's rigorous clear. way, and that'll definitely overcall the 30 percenters, the QCA will. Yeah. Um, so, so that was it. And the learning curve was virtually non existent. The other observation we made uh, at the request of FDA was. Uh, this uh, IBL-induced ventricular capture. You know, even when you do it in the periphery, but certainly in the heart, you'll see what looks like pacemaker spikes. 
Well, 41% of the patients had IVL-induced ventricular capture. It's more common if you have a slow heartbeat to begin with. So, you know, multivariate analyses have identified resting sinus bradycardia, meaning less than 60 or less than 65. If you're uh, doing 10 pulses at one pulse per second, it usurps the pacemaker function of the heart. It gets ventricular capture. I can say, uh, quote, electromechanical transduction. Right. And, um, but it has not got enough energy to cause an arrhythmia that's not been seen. And it was of absolutely no clinical consequence. It's yeah. a curiosity. Uh, if you get it, your frequency of dropping blood pressure is more frequent. But the magnitude of blood pressure drop wasn't different between patients that had IVL-induced ventricular capture and those that did not, not. frankly. So it's uh, no big deal from an interventionist standpoint. If I'm in the lab, it doesn't really bother me. If somebody's really marginal to begin with, Mike, I might tank them up with some volume, sure. barely give them a little Neo, tighten them up, and yeah. do it. But it's, and you, you got 10 seconds, that's it. Then you go with the balloon up to six atmospheres to see if you get full balloon inflation. And imagine that in that population of patients I just described, the maximum IVL balloon inflation pressure average six atmospheres. Wow. So it works. Uh, it fractures. And we showed that in the OCT. Uh, Rich Lothnitz, you know, had that abstract uh, sub-study. You get... Um, multiplanar fracture of calcium, circumferential and longitudinal. Uh, nothing else does that. And particularly for the deep calcium, nothing does that. So that's an important point, Dean. It's not it's going both in circles the fracture and along the, the artery. So you're really disrupting the architecture in two ways to kind of open it up. Is that correct? Uh, absolutely. In fact, following stent deployment, Depth of the fractures did change. Width of the fractures, multiple. So it appears that transmural compliance is enhanced by fracture expansion when you put a stent in. That's what it appears. Now, orbital uh, and uh, rotational atherectomy has been complicated by periprocedural MI, which I'm obviously, as a guy who studied myocardial perfusion for 30 years, not a fan of. Uh, and also uh, a high rate of thermal injury and a, a substantial rate of restenosis. In fact, restenosis rates are about the same as, uh, you know, the control arm. So what do we see here in terms of restenosis? And is there an advantage over the thermal injury with rotablation? Yeah. Well, your first point is absolutely entirely true. Um, after IBL, perforation, abrupt closure, and no reflow. Zero. Wow. Now, after stent deployment, there was one person who had a microperf, didn't, didn't get a pericardial effusion, no mace to 30 days. I mean, this is, uh, you know, a prolonged balloon inflation. That was it in the stent. Mm -hmm. That was it after stenting. Uh, prior to that, and, you know, this is a bad group of patients to begin with, with that level of calcium. But to have zero perf, uh, zero abrupt closure, and zero no reflux is uh, striking. Then stent expansion 
at the point of maximum calcium. That's the biggest arc. And if there were two areas in the artery that had the same arc, it was also the greatest thickness. So that was a two component to what is the area of maximum calcium in this vessel. And the bottom line, 102% stent expansion. Now, you know, in the MSA, your minimum stent area, a 6.5 millimeter square. Do you know what that means long-term? I call calcium the gift that keeps giving, meaning if you look at the natural history following stenting, there's a Barantis paper, and there's a recent Guidonet and, you know, Madhaven and the group at CRF, which looked at 18 trials, 20,000 patients who did five-year follow-up. The Kaplan-Meier curves go like this for death, MI, and revascularization. They continue to go apart, even if you landmark it one year. So calcium causes late restenosis and thrombosis. Well, at a stent expansion of 102% average, in the worst calcified segment, you're, you're going to have a heck of a lot less uh, restenosis and thrombosis. You should. One could predict that based on that dimension, you know, an MSA or stent expansion. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I, I think you can accommodate any intimal hyperplasia better through, you know, I was just wondering a little bit more about, you know, with directional and rotational atherectomy, we may provoke more intimal hyperplasia from the thermal injury. Yeah. You're, you're not causing that. So, you know, the loss index, the amount of intimal hyperplasia, is it less? Is right. It Do we know that? Um, there... Uh, as far as heat energy, um, I don't. I don't know. I think I, I'm excited to get the one-year results, and we're going to have that. So um, we'll know from the target vessel failure rates in a year how how this. Yeah, yeah. Um, ischemia-driven DLR. Mm -hmm. I think they're going to be extremely low based on what we know. But I. But again, that's going to be an exciting next step um, to the to the trial. I know you can't speculate, Dean, but I'm going to ask you to a little bit here. What's the regulatory pathway look like for this device? Um, well, I think at this point we've, we've um, hit, hit a home run uh, with the trial as it was designed, satisfied every criteria better than we had actually hoped, you know. And um, I would hope, since it's been identified as a breakthrough technology, that there would be um, some efficiency of process. Let me put it that way. And we shall see. Uh, I would like to see it, and I can tell you the interventional community would like to see it, uh, you know, early in 21. Yeah. Early in 21. I think um, we've already seen off-label use of the BTK, the peripheral balloons, the S4, right. 40 millimeters in length, 2.5 to 4 millimeter diameter. Right. We're seeing that more and more. And that's not, you know, yeah. we live in a world where sometimes we do that. That wouldn't be my first choice. Right. A 12 millimeter long, you know, coronary balloon. And I think it's, it's an unmet need. It's a breakthrough technology. And I think, uh, you know, the time has come. It's out in Europe and they're, they're using it. So uh, without 
any uh, untoward events, in fact, to facilitate uh, cases. Mm -hmm. Using it in the periphery, as you know. I mean, for us, the first time I used that, first few times I used the device was for tavern access. Um, and it's been tremendous uh, for iliac and femoral uh, to facilitate access for mechanical cardiac support, for TABR, uh, EVAR, T-VAR. Our guys are using it in the endograph space. And it, it really has been transformational as far as access, I think. That's great. Well, Dean, congratulations. I really do think this is a breakthrough technology. Thanks for sharing your results with us. And thanks to all of you out there for joining us here virtually for TCT 2020.